You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show. Thank you for joining us, whether you're listening live right now at this very moment or if you've downloaded the podcast version of the show. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined by Alexandra Heller-Nicholas and it's the return of... Our guest host, Emma Westwood. Good evening to you both. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I feel really quite awkward, though, after the emotional show coming in here. Um, Thomas has... Um, Thomas, not Thomas. Josh has been waved off. And I, I kind of feel like, uh, I don't know, all about Eve. Eve uh, <laughs> backstabbing Margot. That's, I think Josh would appreciate that reference. I was going to say... If Josh that makes, Wood. He's, if, if he knows yes. that film back to front. If that makes Josh Betty Davis, I think he'd be thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much the look he's been going for for uh, or, many years or know me in uh showgirls you know that actually pretty much sums josh up person like perfectly across between know me from showgirls and um betty davis from Fantastic. Everybody. i so hope he's listening to this giving him a special gift he's got no right of reply because he has, <laughs> he has finished up if you did miss the show last week we we bid a very very sad but but grateful farewell to josh nelson who who finished up ever since beginning the show with with myself and tara judah all those many years ago but um I'm going to think of this like a Doctor Who episode where he's regenerated, and it's the same but different. We're going to we're going to go forward into a new season, and and hope this producer knows what they're doing, and doesn't screw things up. You can be our Peter Capaldi. Oh, wonderful! There you but go. Watch it on the F bombs. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Just Ooh. settle down. <laughs> Hey, before we go any further, a very big thank you to Phoebe Squared for the past three hours of music on Maps. Phoebe will be back next Monday at 4pm. But look, on tonight's show, we're going to take a look at the new film by Oliver Stone. It's Snowden, a biopic about Edward Snowden, the American computer expert who leaked highly classified information from the National Security Agency, exposing the mass surveillance by the US government on its own citizens as well as the rest of the world. We shall also be taking a look at the classic 1957 film Paths of Glory, which will be screening at Cinema Nova soon as part of their Stanley Kubrick retrospective program. But first, we're going to take a look at The Red Turtle. This is an animated feature film made as a collaboration between various European distribution and production companies and the Japanese animation company Studio Ghibli. It is the feature film directorial debut for Michael Dudok de Witt, a Dutch animator and illustrator who is based in England. Uh, Dudok de Witt has occasionally delved into filmmaking before, having made a handful of short animated films, including Father and Daughter in 2000, which won numerous awards, including an Oscar. With an animation style closer to the look of European comic book drawings, then say Japanese animation, The Red Turtle is a dialogue-free story about a man washed up on a desert island. While trying to do all that he has to do in order to survive and hopefully leave the island, he increasingly begins to have visions and hallucinations. When he encounters a giant red turtle, the film goes into far more ambiguous territory than its original castaway premise. I felt this film was designed to allow audience to, audiences to decide for themselves what levels of allegory, magical realism or literal truth was being depicted. Emma, mm. I know you, uh, you, both you and I have been to see this yes. film. I know it left quite a big impression on you. What do you think? Do you agree that that second half is a little bit ambiguous about how we're meant to receive it? And is it true that you cried like a little bitch? Is that true? <laughs> I did. I haven't been affected by a film like that for quite a while. 
especially animation. I mean, I, lo- I do love animation, but um, uh, it's not my choice usually. And this was like, I felt like I was immersed in artwork. I think I suffered Stendhal syndrome through it. <laughs> Alex will be able to appreciate that. What's that? Stendhal syndrome is... I, I, this is not. Yeah. A, this is, it's like a Come pop on. quiz. Yeah. Um, it's it's a, it's a recorded syndrome that people experience primarily at the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, where they are overwhelmed in the presence of great art, and oh. you have a sensation. They actually at the Florence, one of the major hospitals, there has a ward put aside for people who experience Stendhal syndrome. Uh, named after Stendhal, who was the first person to write about it um, at the Uffizi, and just seeing great artworks that you would almost kind of fall into the art, that the lines between art and reality would collapse and that you would almost become... Yeah, you sort of fall into the art. I only know this because there's a Dario Argento film called <laughs> Stendhal Syndrome. Thomas was looking at me like, wow, you're some hoity-toity, knowing-things <laughs> person. You, you know things. Yeah, no, um, no, I know stuff about Dario Argento films and he made a film about it. But, I mean, <laughs> you had a response akin to that with The Red Turtle. I sure did. I sure did. Wow. I think, um, you know... It's interesting because it, you know, it, it's a, it's a rather short film, really. It doesn't it doesn't outstay its welcome at all. I found that it was just like being totally immersed in art, and I think that's why it's best to see it at the cinema rather than at home, because you've got no distractions, hopefully no distractions around you, and you can just and to just see this imagery on the big screen was just absolutely incredible because it's a real work of it's a work of subtlety and shadows and shading and it's not lurid and bright or anything like that it's this beautiful soft washed palette um that works really beautifully in terms of accentuating nature which is about this character or characters um within being eclipsed by nature in a number of ways um and i love the way that it had this static it looked like the imagery was static and then there'd be this slight movement and in some ways you couldn't even tell where the movement was coming from it was just all blended so beautifully and seamlessly and elegantly into this film and the way it showed different times of the day you know the lengthening of shadows across different times of the day the different hues uh underwater versus over the water, the night going into monotones. It's Look, it sounds like, in describing it like that, it could sound like that that's all it is, an art film, but it's not. It's really it's really pow- powerful. It's dialogue-free, except for some grunts and a year or something like that. Um, I think that that's something that people could think, oh, God, this sounds laborious, but it's not. It just rockets along and it's... It's so powerful. The sound mix is so powerful. Um, just the sounds of even the most Japanese part of it was the bamboo. You know, there was a theme of bamboo through it and he kept on moving the bamboo and it clonks against each other. It was just so overwhelming. And when I saw it, there was a, a, a young girl sitting in front of me and she would have been there with her grandparents and I think she was probably, she would have been about seven years old and I thought maybe this is too adult a film for her. But I heard her when she walked out and she said, wow, that was amazing. So I think that that shows that it can engage a child on that level as well, that it isn't just art house wank if you're listening to me and thinking that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> it, it's great when younger audiences connect with films that aren't necessarily tailor-made for them. I think that's always heartening to hear that. Yeah. Um, uh, look, I was very impressed by the look of this film as well. It and played at Miff, didn't it? Yes, yeah. it did. But I, I caught it... Uh, 
sometime after the media right. screening. Um, so one of the preview screenings held in the cinema for critics and um, was really struck by just... I think we all went in expecting a Studio Ghibli-style film because it has been promoted as from Studio Ghibli. It's very Ghibli. heavily branded, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, but it really doesn't resemble those films in kind of formal style uh, at all. It does have that European comic book fine line, very detailed drawing tradition, and, and you know the characters have just dots for eyes. It's very simple animation, and by that simple style, they're incredibly expressive. Yeah, I um, I loved at least the first half of this film. I thought, you know, th- th- this guy on the island trying to to find his way through and to to, to survive. And there's a couple of really stomach churning moments actually when he oh, might yes. be in trouble. Exactly. There's an underwater sequence. We talked about Blair Witch last week. Actually, there's another sort of tunnel sequence in this that leaves Blair Witch for dead. Um, that the claustrophobia I that you feel watching him in that. Yeah, and this was incredible. a cinema I sort of hardened critics, and there was a gasp at this one mm-hmm. moment where everyone thought, "Oh, is this film going to go really bad now?" It I was... love it when that happens in critics screenings when people express actual emotion. I know. Look up from their notebooks. <laughs> Goodness me! I know it's like the androids have been activated. <laughs> so that was nice to witness. Um, and then it gets very circle of life I, I, I suppose. Oh, yeah, when, absolutely. With the way the film goes. And, look, I, I, I wasn't blown away to the extent that you were and a lot of other people, but, you know, huge admiration for, for this film. I think I preferred the more straightforward conventional stuff at the start where where it developed, I thought it was lovely, but it just stopped resonating for me on the level of a more traditional narrative. But I, I do tend to respond to more traditional animation narratives yes, okay. so so maybe that that just says something about my my wiring but it's certainly a, a stunning film that i hope people get to experience on the big screen yeah. so do you think it was a little vague in the second half i know we can't say too much <laughs> uh, we don't want to spoil it for people but yeah well it, because the, the the first half sets up the idea that he's starting to see things he's having he's having nightmares and he's having waking hallucinations so the yeah. second half feels like oh is that where it's going is this something he's imagining or is this stuff really now happening um, Okay. Um, but is it happening literally or is it happening on a magical realism level? And so I had that kind of awkward, when does this bit end and we go back to the normal bit? And then I had oh, to throw, oh, no, we're okay. staying with this now. And, and and the film then kind of progresses in a way with a sort of the temporal nature of the second half is very different to the first half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If that yeah. makes sense if you've seen the film. Yeah, I get it. Just, um, I think that... So I, I, yeah. I didn't fully lock into the way I think I needed to. Yeah. Even though I, I think this is a, a tremendous film, mm. um, you know, there is no way I'm going to criticise it and say there's anything wrong with it. But um, mm. I, I wasn't as transported with it as many other people have been. Yeah. We were talking about that last week with Sully because that was the experience that I had with Sully and that I couldn't fault it. But it almost just felt like we were two trains passing each other mm. at the same station. <laughs> it just sometimes it just doesn't hit. It's, it a, it's an interesting and experience. I think it's important like, for critics to acknowledge yeah, that. To yeah, yeah, and it's that like there is absolutely nothing wrong with this film. It is actually me who's got the totally. It's not you. It's, it's me. me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think more critics need to be able to take that on yeah, board and yeah. say. Yeah. And it's not a fault of the film. It's just, just uh, yeah. I mean, you, you're a human. You know, you yeah, have kind of exactly. I, I, look, I felt with this film that it was the kind of I, I get a lot of people saying to me, oh, "I just want to go and tune out. I just want to go and see something where I can tune out." And then they go and watch some some crap. Right. Uh, this is the sort how, of film... How dare you? I, I stand by my crap. <laughs> <laughs> but this is this is something where you can actually go and you can tune out if you want to and just let it wash over you or you can look at it at a different level because it is very 
smart. And I felt that I sort of went into a meditative state. It was like a, you know, my happy place. And I wanted to swim in that water that they had. It was just so visceral and gorgeous. It was pretty inviting, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 it was. And I had a stressful day. So Mm. um, I came out literally feeling changed. And I think that is in terms of... Seeing a film, I often watch fairly hardcore, challenging films. So for a film that was light, and you could say it is a lighter film, um, to do that and affect me on that level, I thought was uh, well done to it. Oh, that's really, that's, uh, that's really cool to hear. I actually, I actually get sort of a sort of vicarious enjoyment through other people's <laughs> pleasure with film. It's, it's great yeah. to know. And just that. hearing descriptions like that, it's like wow, good art can. D- Good art can change you. Yeah, it can. Full, full stop. It can. Scandal syndrome. I'll give it. I'll give it another go at some time as well because <laughs> because it, I think you're right. It is a very soothing, relaxing film. It is. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, lovely film to get to, to get lost in. Uh, just very briefly, Alex. Circumstances worked against you, so you weren't able to see your film. Despite <laughs> they your, sure did. They sure did, despite your very best intentions. But I've got something <laughs> much more something upbeat else. to the table. <laughs> so our our good friends at um, at Road show they do these amazing um family day kind of promotional family screenings for upcoming films and they did one of these for their new film stalks their new animated film um and they had uh, it was just gorgeous it was at the jam factory and they're always really lovely there and they had balloon animals and face painting and kids hepped up on juice and popcorn and yeah, a lot of the big distributors do this they're gorgeous yeah. it's, Universal have done some great ones I've recently. never been to one of the kids ones yeah. before and we all went in just yep. loaded up with our balloon animals just hepped up on juice like, yes bring me a film <laughs> it was just a beautiful experience um, Stocks itself was I, I laughed I actually really kind of belly laughed I don't think it's I don't think it's a good film but there are moments in it that were really great that the kind of premise of this film um, is that there's a stalk factory, but then there are other ways now to get babies. So they're basically like a delivery company for an Amazon-type corporation. Mm-hmm. Very loose premise. It's direct, co-directed by um, Nicholas Stoller, who did Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Get Him to the Greek, and a guy called Douglas Sweetland, who did the short uh, Presto before Pixar's 2008 film Wally. I don't know if you remember Presto, the oh, magician that was, one. That was a good one. Yeah. And, yeah, and Stoller so they, did the, the Muppets reboot. Yeah, I think he wrote well. it, or did he direct them as well? Uh, yes. He had something to do with them. But anyway, Warner... <laughs> quick, look it up. <laughs> I know that Warner um, are very keen to kind of cash in on the success that they had with the Lego movie. But anyway, stalks aside, where I really want to, what I really want to mention here is they were doing that Pixar thing with the little short beforehand, and there was a five-minute short, grab your 20 bucks, check at the box office that, that they are going to play the short beforehand, but they're doing... There's a Lego Ninjago movie coming out soon, and they had like a little short film called The Master... Honest to God, one of my films of the year. It wow. was just unbelievable. Just a little ninja Lego five-minute film. All the grown-ups were standing on the <laughs> chairs just screaming, just more. There's a chicken. There's ninjas. I really don't need more. From- you can keep your stinky red turtles and your deep feelings of high art. I had ninjas and chickens for five minutes and it was amazing. I mean, Storks was kind of like the kind of um, like a chaser. After this amazing, amazing film, The Master, everybody go and see The Master. So Alex endorses The Master, the short film playing before Storks, and Emma endorses The Red Turtle. You're listening to 3 Triple R. This is Plato's Cave. 3 Triple R. 
Snowden is the new film by American filmmaker Oliver Stone, who made many iconic films in the 1980s and 1990s, including Platoon, Wall Street, Born on the Fourth of July, JFK and Natural Born Killers. The film is based on the book the books The Snowden Files by Luke Harding and Time of the Octopus by Anatoly Kucherina. Uh, although anybody who saw the Laura Poitras who saw Laura Poitras's documentary Citizen Four, uh, which we covered at the time on Plato's Cave, will be familiar with the story of Edward Snowden secretly meeting with uh, Poitras and a Guardian journalist in 2013 in order to leak highly classified information about the extent and scope of the U.S. government surveillance program. Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays Snowden, and while the film follows the flashback structure to show us the events in Snowden's life that led him to becoming a a whistleblower to some, a traitor to others, the film is still a fairly conventional, based-on-a-true-story biopic. We see key events in Snowden's personal and professional life, with the film building to the point where Snowden took the action that he did. New Oliver Stone, another iconic American character that he's built a film around. Who wants to leap in on this one? Can I just say, I need to get this out of my system. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is one of those names I cannot say without like melting into conga line. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. <laughs> just Philip Seymour Hoffman and David Foster Wallace are the same. So if just while we're doing this... If Philip if, Baker if, Hall? Oh, no, no, no. Doesn't do it? No. Michael J. Fox? No. Philip Seymour Hoffman. You're listening Philip to Seymour quite a bit of criticism here on Plato's Cave. <laughs> Joseph Gordon. Anyway, I'm going to do it. I'm going to accidentally sing his name dur- during this review. Um, wow. So, uh, uh, look, I really like Citizen Four. Yeah. Um, was there, it last year we did that? Yeah, you know what? It was the week before I started. It was the week before my first before show. Before you were official or no, no, were you on I, the show when it we was, did it? it was, no, no, I wasn't. It was the week before I did my first Okay, so show it was of, the start of last year. Yeah, yeah. Citizen so it was in yep. February last year, I okay. think. Yep. Um, I, I do think that Oliver Stone has made some really amazing movies. Talk Radio and Nixon are the ones at the top. Um, but this, for me, is not one of them. Um, I really struggled with this. I do really like my politics is aligned with that of Edward Snowden. I, I, I like him. That um, Citizen Four, I feel, was such an intimate portrait that I feel that I can kind of make that call. Anything that I could have gotten from this film, I felt that I got from Citizen Four. I, I really struggled with this. I think the performances were amazing. Um, I think there were some really strong performances in this film. But I just... I, Oliver Stone, it's just a cinema's great mansplainer. Just this constant didactic. <laughs> it was like being at a barbecue and just having a guy poking you in your, in your yeah. chest talking about politics. It's like, dude, I agree with you. You don't need to lecture me. You don't need to... Just just try some subtle... Su- try, try subtlety. Just try something <laughs> subtle. I just found this so preachy. And that's from somebody that actually agreed with the politics of the film. Um, and it, it just this, it just felt like an old man telling a young man's story. That the aesthetic of this constantly reminded me of the 1995 Sandra Bullock film, The Net. Um, it's like yeah. it's it's cyber, like cyber digital. Like it was just oh, come on. There was a bit. We're going into the circuitry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so nineties. It was so nineties. So look, I was really. I I think that. Joseph Gordon <laughs> was extraordinary. Like um, I thought he was excellent. And too. I, th- I don't yeah. think this is a spoiler. I think this is part of the kind of promotion that Edward Snowden himself does appear in the film. Yes, I think that that's something that I we can talk about. That's fairly that's widely known. Cl- it, it doesn't make or break the film. No, no and no. I, I actually there was a moment where I had to stop 
uh, to make that identification mm. because yeah. I thought Joseph Gordon did such. I'm, I told you this was going to happen. <laughs> I thought he did just did. I mean, it, I thought it was an amazing performance in a kind of mediocre film. Yeah, yeah. I think he, all all that you're talking you're talking about the lack of um, subtlety, and uh, I guess yes, there is a lack of subtlety. Subtlety, but that's. Uh, that seems to be Oliver Stone across the board. That's true. <laughs> so in some ways I found this to be probably his most subtle film <laughs> that I've seen, maybe because of Joseph Gordon, his, um, his performance, because it was very, very low-key and he almost played it like most of the time he was like an observer more than a participant in some ways which i thought was quite effective the the less subtle part of it was uh reese ivans which yeah. i actually found him to be the weakest character in there he kind of was like this malevolent uh you know uh voice of god cia voice of god whatever which um i thought it was very hammy especially one point when he was on a video screen kind oh, of almost looming I was, that's over actually him. when i almost walked out I yeah mean, that's a ludicrous scene exactly ludicrous. exactly and uh oh evil bad mm. you know um big brother sort of thing and and i felt the same way as you um alex in terms of you know yeah i'm I'm with it in terms of the politics, but I haven't seen Citizen Four, so I felt this kind of suffered from. I, I took the facts from what I know just from the news and looking mm-hmm. into it, but um, I feel it suffers from the the biopic syndrome, which is people walk away thinking they've seen a documentary when biopics aren't aren't documentaries and even documentaries can be a bit blurry at times so uh that's problematic and you guys touched on it last week actually when you spoke about sully and films like that i mentioned this film because it starts off telling you this is a dramatization which is one of the things we brought up last week which sully Sully didn't do yeah Yeah. no i agree with that i agree with that Mm -hmm. i just think that has to happen more because Mm. look i I very much believe films can't be held accountable for the fact that people assume they're real but it it does happen so it does audiences do need to be reminded i mean you know in my dream utopia world there's much more education in the school system about how to analyze media and and cinema and then people like you and me and and most people we know would have a lot more employment to to teach this (laughs) stuff but um (laughs) but uh, yeah yeah so um I guess I'm going to more or less kind of agree with what everybody said. I mean, I, it, it feels weird to chastise Oliver Stone for being unsubtle because that's like... <laughs> yeah, no, I know. It, it's his thing. You know, it's like saying Oscar Scorsese was a bit too violent or mm-hmm. Tim Burton mm-hmm. was a bit too... Do, 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 those, Tim Burton, film. those Tim Burton films <laughs> sure do have curly fences in them, don't they? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, but I think when the, the overall vibe of the film is trying to be a little bit more restrained and a traditional biopic, those unsubtle moments are really glaring. Mm. And um, and it was, yeah, I think what you said, that the great man explainer, an old man explained to a young man how things work, that was the kind of feel of this film. And a lot of it was, well, this is Oliver Stone's politics being articulated by the characters back almost directly to camera and I agree I'm on side with all this but I'm that was what's getting, so frustrating I'm kind of getting annoyed hearing it having said that there were points where I thought oh that's articulated in a way I can never articulate so I'll remember that next time I'm at a barbecue with my drunk idiot uncle and you know <laughs> figure, figuratively actually but um, you know we all have those relatives. hi Thomas's uncle <laughs> It's not literally my uncle, but we all have those relatives where we wish we had a really snappy way of summing yeah. up the issues. Yeah, yeah. And I guess exactly. this film provides s- some of that, but it's um, 
it gets wearing. And I, I was really aware of the time passing this film yeah. as well. And I, I, I got a bit fed up with it. I think there yeah. were some really just strategic errors in the way that this film was put together. So we see um, one of the things that really drove me insane, and once I realised what was happening, I just couldn't let it go. But uh, we see... Snowden have a couple of epileptic fits and yeah. they're, they're presented formally in a very kind of kaleidoscopic, you know, they're very stylized and this is how it's communicated to us. Mm-hmm. Near the end of the film, as the kind of chase is on, it, it just I think there's a shot of uh, the Laura Petraeus character walking down a corridor or doing something and he uses a really similar shot and I couldn't figure out if she was also epileptic. I just had this moment... Oh, I thought, okay. And I thought, no, no, he's just mixing up that's the inter- film yeah, style. That's, like, that's, this is just really sloppy filmmaking. That is like, interesting because I thought it was very, uh, in some ways, quite uncinematic. And though those were the that epi- the epileptic fits mm. were almost the little heavy-handed flourishes, really. Yeah. yeah. The, the, what elevates this, I think, from a TV movie biopic is the performances. And mm. I really, mm. um, I, I, I just, Joseph Gordon, I mean, I'm, I can talk about him, but yeah, Melissa, was it Melissa Leo? Oh, Melissa Leo. She is was great. Wonderful. There's a young guy that I'd never heard of before called Ben Schnetzer, who played a character called Gabriel Sol. He Which was the guy that he met, the kind of um, stoner dude. That he worked with from the NRA, oh, yes. N- NRA yep. NSA. Uh, yeah. yep. 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 That's, that's not NRA. That's, that's the other guy. <laughs> no, no, guys. he doesn't work for them. Um, I've never seen this guy before. Apparently he was in the Riot Club that we looked at last year. Oh, was uh, he But really? I didn't even remember he him was from that. He was in the book that. Thief, which I don't think we covered. And I just I just love this guy's performance. Like yeah, he really he captured the screen. So the performances were really strong. I mean, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, she says in a normal voice. Well done. I thought he just um, really just blew that out of the ballpark. He, he is incredible. I just, just quickly talking about performances, I actually didn't mind uh, Reese Eifens in this. I thought he was fine. The performance for me that really stood out as belonging to a different film was Nicolas, Nicolas Cage. Cage. What the hell was that Being about? Nicolas Cage on Eleven, which I normally... Look, I, I'm a big fan of crazy over-the-top Nicolas Cage, but it really felt like they just picked him up from, you know, raising Arizona and put him in this film and said, just Nicolas Cage away. <laughs> to say to say like Nicholas Cage is really weird in this film is again like saying there sure are a lot of curly fences in a Tim Burton film, but even for Nicholas Cage, I forgot about it. It's like he does this weird thing at the start of the film and then he does this flash at the end of the film and it's like oh that's right. It almost feels like he's in he character from. On screen, <laughs> the Let me clarify. Yeah, flash, it yeah. felt to me by the end of the film that he was almost in character from Bad Lieutenant, the um, Herzog <laughs> film. Like yes. he's just so ramped up to eleven. Like it's just so extraordinary. Looking at dancing iguanas and yeah. What did you guys make of the Snowden cameo? I got a little bit, actually, heart in the throat. I actually was quite moved by that. I think it was, despite all the criticisms we have of the film and how it delivers its message, it reminded us that at the centre of this was an extraordinary... uh, very young man who has who's changed the world. I mean, he, he will be somebody who's remembered as a key figure from the 21st century. And sacrificed his life, essentially. Yeah. Really. You know, when it comes down to it. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I did like it, yes. I thought it was... Um, no, no, no. I thought it was moving in that way. The thing that annoyed me... I mean, this is just, look, you know, Hollywood cinema these days. The welling of the music, the, mm-hmm. you know, all that sort of stuff. I went, the, the emotion's there. You don't need to do it, you know. You really don't need to do, do it. Just do a talk radio thing. Just have, like, a still yes. camera, break that fourth wall, go for go for broke. Like, But, I, I mean, I was, I was the same. Film. I felt it was a very corny thing to do, but it totally moved me. I felt this, you know, Edward Snowden has earned the right to this moment. So even though I was very, very, very not into the film as a whole, I was with its politics. And I really do, yeah, I, I had the same reaction as you, Thomas. I really was quite struck 
by a cameo that really shouldn't have worked. But I think yeah. there was something about Snowden himself. It's like you, you've actually earned this moment. Like you deserve to have this moment where you say, this is my story. This is what I lost. Mm. This is what I did and this is why I did it. Three, triple, ah. Oh. Now, from the 6th to the 19th of October, Cinema Nova will be screening all of Stanley Kubrick's feature films. As we did when we covered some of Acme's Martin Scorsese retrospective screenings, we thought we'd pick a few of the lesser talked about films to discuss, as much as it is tempting to delve into Dr. Strangelove, 2001, The Clockwork Orange and The Shining. So tonight we've selected Stanley Kubrick's 1957 film Paths of Glory. Kubrick made many films made films in many different genres uh, usually only the ones but the war film was something he returned to several times with Fear and Desire Paths of Glory, Doctor Strange Love and Full Metal Jacket. Paths of Glory was Kubrick's fourth film and very much established him as a filmmaker of note building on his previous success with his 1955 heist film The Killing. It's loosely based on actual events. Uh, Paths of Glory is set in the trenches during the First World War where a French general ordered his soldiers to make an impossible attack against the Germans and then court-martialed a selection of the surviving soldiers for cowardice when they were unable to advance. Kirk Douglas plays Colonel Dax, the commanding officer who ends up defeating, uh, defending rather the accused men. Now, this is the film that I think really established Kubrick's ongoing themes and stylistic devices. We may touch on some of those, as well as simply being, in my opinion, one of the all-time great war or anti-war films. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's. It, were you new to this? This was my first time seeing this. Alex? I thought I'd seen it, and I was watching it. It's like, no, I I would remember this. <gasps> yeah. Lucky so girl. it's one of those treats. It's like, mm. And it's an old favourite of yours, isn't it, Emma? Very much so. Yeah, I look. I, yeah. I think this is Kubrick's first masterpiece. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think all I his agree. films are amazing, but this is the first one that I think is mind-blowing, you know, as good as it gets. It's incredible. I think that it, right from that first scene, that whole setup, which is a, basically just a discussion between the two generals or whatever ranking they were and how that camera is just like swirling around them and then moving in and out and that whole, and then it just moves into the trenches and you're literally, you're right in the bottom of the trenches. There. It's just so visceral. Um, and Kubrick, for being such a cold director, he's just so removed to manage to get this sense of emotion. It's got a very emotional end, which, you know, won't talk about. Don't want to spoil it. But um, The film's a few years old now. It is a few years old, <laughs> but, you know, still there are people like Alex who are probably seeing it for the first <laughs> <That's true>. time. <laughs> well, the, I mean, the final scene is very... Noobs. Un- These Kubrick yeah. noobs. <laughs> yeah. But he's, I think that, you know, the interesting thing is it's, it's um, that coldness... Um, that we were talking about the music welling up at the end of you know uh, Snowden and pushing the buttons going this is emotional feel the emotional feel the emotion Kubrick doesn't need to do that you know he just goes here's here's the emotion I'm going to stand aside and you're going to watch it and you're going to feel it and that's that's what you do like that that when they they battle when they uh, they try and take the anthill and they go across no man's land it almost feels like a documentary the way the cameras are like just creeping across with them and that onslaught of mm. 
firepower is it feels deafening you know it's just this cacophony of noise and know? for years that sequence was considered to be one of the all-time great depictions of of, of war in terms of yeah. realism especially first world war i mean i don't think it was really surpassed until saving private ryan and then that became the standard yeah. but for a long long time paths of glory was by many yeah. considered the standard and it's still incredible Yes. I can't believe this film was made in 1957. No, I was thinking that when I was watching. I mean, and, and you, you touched on this already, Thomas, but um, the I saw the Criterion print of this, which is just beautiful, mm. just yeah. beautiful. And there's a great, um, I think it's on their website, but James Naramore does an amazing essay on this film. And he was saying this is the first time, again, like he was saying, like not just uh, the, the kind of thematic patterns that we'd see in a lot of Kubrick's later work, but formally... The, you know some of these shots the way that the film is put together you, you really start to see this signature kubrickian style and the, this opening scene that you're talking about with the, the the brigadiers and the generals having this discussion is 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 really effective yeah but what absolutely knocked me out was these shots in the trenches mm. these these zooming long takes just these unbelievable panning shots you know just ex- and all just taken from the, the they had low. to be tracking shots. Tracking shots. Yeah. Sorry, tracks, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. But but it looks at the type of Steadicam te- Steadicam technology that he wouldn't develop until the 80s. It was the shining. That's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. It reminded it me. Like, it's exactly yeah. the same kind of cinematography that you see with Danny in those corridors in The Shining. Yeah. It's like this is mm-hmm. years and years later, and he's still doing this same this swooping movement, this ominous swooping movement. Those scenes in the trenches are almost. There's a kind of theatricality that I found fascinating in that, yes, there is this realism, but there's also this sort of heightened theatricality. Yeah, yeah. Staginess and and in between the tension between these two opposing forces is such a powerful energy. And then you throw in actors of the calibre of people like Kirk Douglas, and this was his decade. I mean, this was absolutely, you know, he started it with um, Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just win after win after win for for Kirk Douglas in that decade. I mean, you know, he's, he's made other good films, but that was... I mean, what a way to bookend a decade, you know, just extraordinary performances. I, th- I think you, you and I read the same essay, Alex, but he's the only person to ever play a Kubrick protagonist, not once but twice, who is un... There is no doubt that he's the good guy. Yes, yes. Kubrick's heroes yeah. are normally heavily compromised, but both in Spartacus and Paths of Glory, he's 100% pure, the real deal. He's our identification point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I think that uh, the Naramore essay had a great quote where... Uh, they had a tenuous working relationship, I believe, and and, and um, oh yeah, Kirk Douglas Big quite egos. <laughs> Douglas quite famously called Kubrick a talented shit, yeah. Yeah. which I just yeah. love. I, yeah, want, I that hope that's great. on his grave because that that's great. beautiful. The performances in this film, though, George McCready, I was like, why do I know this man who played um, Brigadier General Paul Moreau? And it's like, who is this man? Who is this man? This voice just Big haunting my sleep. Scar down the side yeah, of his face. Yeah, and it's um, he was Balan Munson from Gilda. Oh, yeah, okay. and I, like the second that clicked, it was like, oh, okay, yeah. this is this is a film yeah. that's like it's like this film took my DNA and just yeah. Ralph Meeker just put everybody in one film just for me. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Um, what it a treat is. to find a! It was just such a discovery. And it's it's interesting too because I think it plays out um, really strongly that idea of class and uh, privilege and the the upper class uh, dumping on the the lower class. I think more than anything in any other Kubrick film, this kind of feels like Kubrick as close to Ken Loach as you can get, <laughs> really, <laughs> which is saying something. <laughs> I, I, it had never occurred to me until I rewatched this film again that it. it it makes a really strong 
pairing with Dr. Strangelove. And I think it is this slight theatricality element about it, which is both films really empathise the absurdity of war and the men who make war. Now, in Dr. Strangelove, that is played for amazing comedy like it's it's all it's all exaggerated and played for laughs in a way that's just so memorable and brilliant where in Pars of Glory it, it's played to accentuate the the horror and the nightmarishness and the I don't know the, the, the Kafkaesque kind of vibe of the situation yeah. that you know the, the, this suicide mission is being forced through so a man can get a promotion yeah. and, and he's he's rhetoric and self-justification and the double speak between the generals that, 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 that first scene of dialogue which is, I wouldn't want you to think that I'm saying this, but here's what I'm going to say, and, <laughs> yes. and you go ahead and do what you think is right, and and you know the absurdity that because these men didn't march their deaths, three of them have to randomly then be picked to be shot to be made examples of. It's um, it's really you know it, it's the range of emotions I went through even rewatching this film is is amazing. Kubrick does get often regarded as a cold filmmaker and may i don't know maybe he was technically or maybe he was as a person but i think there's a lot of emotion in his film and this is one where i felt so much upset for the man i felt so much anger the the sequence where one character that the wonderful uh character actor Tim- timothy carey is being walked to the um you know where they're going to shoot him and he just breaks yeah. down and cries and the camera is kept on him crying he's heartbreaking and that final scene, which you won't tell you what happens because it's a it's a really unconventional out of left field scene, Amazing. is what cements this film mm. and just makes it and a real Kubrick's, punch in the gut. Kubrick's wife in that film, future wife. Yeah, he met her on Chris, the film. Christian, yeah. actually met her on the film. You can actually look her up online. She she can teach you how to paint. She's in her eighties now and she teaches oh. painting. You can go to her house and Christian. Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah, it actually yeah. reminded me of the uh, what's the, the Renoir film we did last year? Just the emotion of it. Um, what was that film called? The Grand the, Illusion. The Grand Illusion. Yeah. Not that the stories were identical, but the emotion in it, and I think that they they had these quite powerful scenes of a song being yeah. sung on stage. Yep. I just I did keep having little flashbacks to the Renoir film watching this, and oh, I think it's because a good they made really they I made think... just really similar impacts on me. Yeah, you know? yeah. That 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 final scene as well, just the emotional shift that goes. Um, from an ensemble cast sitting there to be able to go from one extreme of emotion to the other and really sell it and end the film is Ralph Meeker something. just blew, I mean, he's just something... Sp- I mean, he's a special guy at the best of times. You know, yeah. like Kiss Me Deadly and Dirty Dozen, Anderson Tapes and stuff. But this is... I've never seen Ralph Meeker like this. Yeah, because he normally plays really hard men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a, he's a yeah. badass. And no, he's not. He's, he was the vulnerable one. Yeah, he was one. gorgeous in yeah. this. Just amazing. Yeah, and but, but quite sympathetically vulnerable too. Like he wasn't... Yeah. He wasn't he, a sap. He wasn't a weak character. <laughs> yeah. he, he was a very strong character. And again, you know, there's a moment where he breaks down, which is really upsetting to watch because he's the one who's... And then pulls himself together. Yeah. That sort of snaps himself back together. And that transformation, just through acting, that look in his mm. face as he pulls himself together, and it, it's mm. it's profound. A lot of really good actors from, from film noir are in this film. I mean, Kubrick was a fan. He cast quite a few of them in, in The Killing. Now, I've mentioned Timothy, Timothy Carey, but he also has um, Joe Turkle in this film, yes. who was in The Killing, who would go on to be the bartender in The Shining. Yeah. Oh, and, my God. And Tyrell in Blade Runner, who... Yeah. who oh, you my know, God. Batty. What a career. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's incredible. So, an extraordinary film. Oh, they, uh, extraordinary. That's the word I always turn to, isn't it? Problematic. <laughs> <laughs> Not problematic at all. <laughs> Paths of Glory. 
very much well, good. We all agree oh, that yeah. one is worth essential. Oh, yeah. it's worth essential. That's why See we it. liked her in classics because more often than not, they're amazing and we can all gush. <laughs> we better wrap this up. You've been listening to Plato's Cave here on Three Triple R with myself, Thomas Cordwell, Alexandra Helen Nicholas, and Emma Westwood. The Red Turtle is on is on limited release, courtesy of Transmission Films. Snowden is on general release courtesy of the Walt Disney Company and Paths of Glory will screen as part of the Stanley Kubrick Film Festival at Cinema Nova from 6 to 19 October. Coming up, local and or Brigadier General of the 701st Infancy Regiment starring Jason, I'm Spartacus Moore. Good night. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.